Perhaps the most famous theory in strategic management is the resource-based view. The resource-based view is a theoretical framework for understanding how competitive advantage is achieved and how it might be sustained over time. In a nutshell, what it does is it claims the idea of firms as bundles of unique capabilities and resources. And these productive resources and capabilities mean that the firm is able to do something that another firm is not. Because resources are differentially distributed across firms and these persist over time, then what it does is create internal sources of sustained competitive advantage. The ultimate implication then is that no one firm holds the same combination of resources and therefore they are capable of achieving different outcomes. In saying that, it's not just any old resource that will do the job in the RBV. Instead, it's only when firms have valuable, rare, inimitable and non-substitutable resources that they can achieve competitive advantage. However, a critical strategic and entrepreneurial danger to any firm though is that its resources over time risk becoming static and rigid and ultimately deteriorating in worth. In this case, what is increasingly crucial to businesses is the need to orchestrate their resources, to think about how their resources and capabilities can be structured, bundled, leveraged and ultimately applied towards new opportunities. The extent to which they can be applied to new opportunities really tells you the extent to which you have rigidity problems. Now the other viewpoint on this is that heavy investment over time can cause rigidity problems because if we invest in the same resources, the same capabilities, then they become materially strong inside our business and form the fundamental basis for our strategies. But if the external environment has changed or the market is changing in ways in which those capabilities or resources are no longer valuable, then our heavy investment can actually work against us by making us rigid. In other words, it's very difficult for firms to break away from historical and large historical investments in particular resources and capabilities, abandon those investments and suddenly move into developing either new bundles or new products, new services and so on and so forth. In many cases, those rigidities prevent that move in the first place. A good illustrative example of this really is to think about how much Nokia struggled in moving to the smartphone technology and smartphone markets. For the most part, stuck and lumbered with its Symbian operating system, what it really tried to do was tweak around the edges and adjust its core technology and therefore its core resource, rather than thinking, okay, what truly new resources and capabilities do we need to survive in this new future marketplace? What is interesting about Nokia then, in many ways, is how did it lose its way? And another company that we can use as an example here is Xerox. In 2000, then-CEO Paul Allaire admitted that Xerox had lost its innovation competency. But by using the capabilities of its scientists, its engineers and resources, it was able to rebuild around managing document-intensive processes. Things such as service expertise, employee talent, technological skills and innovation were then crucial to its core capabilities. Now it may seem odd in many ways that firms lose their capabilities and we may ask well why does that happen? 
The key point is that they're not easy to identify in the first place and so they are not easy to protect. We have problems such as causal ambiguity and fundamentally resource capabilities possess a social element that makes them both sticky but also very difficult to transfer among our business and therefore protect. They can also be undermined by cost-saving strategies. For example, when we go after elements of the value chain in an effort for cost-cutting, what that can actually do is strip out resources and capabilities that we didn't realize interrelated with others. The other issue, of course, is that the, as the environment changes, our current resources and capabilities become rigid and ineffective. It's not so much that we lose the capability, it's that our capability simply becomes less valuable. But it's worth digging into this a bit further because there's actually quite a wealth of, of research now, not just on the simple possession of resources, but how resources accumulate and how resources are deployed. Some of these studies that I've come across and particularly like, for example, is the work of McCaddock in 2003, who looked at human agency and the role of this in, in resource investment decisions and profitable resource advantages. For example, while logically investing in resources can lead to profitable advantages from those resources, the reality is that agency problems cause underinvestments in resources of uncertain value, and this by extension leads to an overinvestment in safe bets. The latter is made even worse if we are looking at a situation of high risk perception. In my own research, for example, some of the things that we noticed is that resources steer attention. They have attention guiding properties, so to speak. So in our study of marketing resources and radical innovation activity, which was published in the Journal of Product Innovation Management in 2016, what we found is that there were different effects from market knowledge resources, reputational resources and relational resources on radical innovation activity. In particular, too much market knowledge resources was actually a bad thing because it tended to be that firms would focus on established ways of doing things and therefore that would undermine their radical innovation activity. Reputational resources also harmed radical innovation activity because of the desire not to damage established brands. But relational resources, for example, and their ability to bring in new resources and new knowledge and new ideas positively drove radical innovation activity. The other key thing that we discovered is these resources had differential effect when it came to commercializing those radical innovations. So, for example, things such as reputational resources then became valuable in the, in the commercialization of radical innovation precisely because the consumer could then recognize a brand, draw ideas and draw uh, parallels from that brand to de-risk the innovation and therefore encourage commercial activity, or in other words, buying decisions. So the point there is that resources steer attention. So this is another fundamental element of the resource-based model that we need to think about for strategy. In this way, then, the resources you have and don't have allows and prevents strategic action. So this is a crucial point. But it's not just the mere possession. Again, particular type of resources can, in many ways, slow down innovation activity, as we showed in our JPIM paper. Now, a logical conclusion from this might be, well, okay, well, if we have large stocks of resources in some way that will be beneficial and in some way we will be protected, this is also an erroneous conclusion to draw. Specifically, there is a danger posed by time and high resource stocks. So a study by De Bruyne et al. in 2010, for example, found that greatest stocks of financial, marketing and technological resources 
were associated with a higher perceived ability to react to a competitor. So in other words, if we have lots and lots of resources, we will believe our strategic managers that we are capable of dealing with a competitor's maneuver, in other words, a threat. However, the same study found that the managers then perceived a lower likelihood of success of a competitor's innovation. In other words, high stocks of resources led them to conclude that not only could they uh, react to a competitor, but that the competitor would be unsuccessful. In other words, if you draw from this, greater stocks of financial, marketing and technological resources risk stimulating complacency. This is especially dangerous because we run the risk of having a precarious advantage. In other words, we have resources that lend to a positive performance effect and we see that in our financial results. However, because we also um, have this tendency to stimulate complacency if our resource stocks are too high, we are really in a precarious advantage and we run the risk of being flanked or outmaneuvered by more innovative rivals. In many ways, then, this brings us squarely to the idea of dynamic capabilities. Dynamic capabilities are an organization's ability to renew and recreate its uh, ordinary or operational capabilities to meet the needs of a changing environment. The flip side of that, as core rigidities, are former core competences that represent organizational inertia and strategic inflexibility. In a further study that I was involved in, for example, we looked at them into the maturity of a new dynamic capabilities. How do they form? How do they mature over time? And how do they become sufficiently strong enough? In this case, many of the things that we found is that there is a dynamic element going on inside the organization as to the emergence of a capability, particularly to do with innovation. It's often a game of negotiation over time and ultimately capabilities do not develop linearly. Specifically, in this paper by Yen Tran, Shakazara and myself, we used a process approach to reveal the role of social group interactions and cognitive elements, specifically around perceptions in the subsequent learning process to do with the emergence of a capability. Now, a study of a large Danish fashion company, what we learned was that conflicts emerged and arose during the process of forming a capability to manage both small new innovations that would build on established product lines while also trying to develop new, true innov innovative new clothing ranges. So because of this, the company and the employees were going through a process of negotiation between different parts of the business that gave rise to conflict. The role of top management then was not to try and force cooperation between these different parts of the business, but rather to try and coordinate activities in a way that would give rise to new capabilities. So if we were to conclude then, what this is bringing to us is the fact that resource ownership in and of itself is not really sufficient for the development of neither strategic uh, management and competitive advantages, nor corporate entrepreneurship. In that way, it's more about not just the resources that we own, but what kind of effects these have in the development of our strategies and the shaping of our thinking, and ultimately then in the formation of competitive advantage in a changing world. Without appropriate resource investments, but also without appropriate development of new dynamic capabilities, we are at risk of ending up in a situation of being static and rigid or ultimately seeing our resource base deteriorate, which then puts us in a highly precarious position relative to competitors.